morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Bruno. I am the pastoral resident here at Winchester Baptist Church. And our scripture reading for this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5, until the end of chapter 4. So please open our Bibles and let's read all of that together now. Uh, just kidding, I want to have lunch today in a proper time. I hope we all got the chance to read basically chapters 2 up to chapter 4 in Isaiah. I, jokes aside, will not be reading that. I trust that we had the opportunity to read. Even if that was not the case, maybe you had a busier week. Uh, please keep your Bibles open on Isaiah chapter 2, between chapter 2 and chapter 4. Although I won't be reading it here, we won't be reading, we'll be uh, making references, so it's good to have your Bible open so that we can all follow together. Uh, so, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you because we can come to you and worship you, and thank you because now we can listen to your voice. Please help us understand what you're saying. Help us understand what you want us to do in light of what you're saying. And please convince us of our sin, but also make us understand the forgiveness that we can find in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't want to give you more trouble referencing other scripture, different from Isaiah chapter 2 to 4. But while I was preparing the sermon, one verse came to my mind. And this is maybe one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. It's Zechariah chapter 4 verse 10. And it says, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. The context for this verse in Zechariah is that Zechariah lived a while after Isaiah, and he lived after the judgment of the Lord. Isaiah here is talking in chapters 2 to chapter 4. He's talking about the day of the Lord. We'll see what that means. Well, Zechariah lived after the day of the Lord. And that means that Jerusalem had been destroyed. The temple that Solomon had built specifically had been torn down. And the people of Judah had been reduced to very few. They were as numerous as the stars in heaven, as the sand of the sea. And now they were just just a few in number. They suffered the day of the Lord. But what is God telling them in that moment? Do not despise the day of small things. If you read chapter 2 up to chapter 4, I believe you notice that this is a passage in which it's hard to find hope. We see a lot of judgment. 
we don't see a lot of reason for hope. Judah is in sin in this passage, and God is saying that he will send judgment. Isaiah is prophesizing the very day of the Lord that Zechariah suffered, Zechariah and his generation. But at the same time, I believe we can see that in these chapters we see reason for hope. After the judgment, God promises renewal. The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious after the judgment. So as we study this text, this is what I hope us to see. God sends judgment on those who are proud, but he saves those who are humble and seek forgiveness. So what I pray that we can find in this passage is that each one of us can find hope in being humble before the Lord. So there are a few ways in which we can divide chapter 2, verse 5, up to the end of chapter 4. Our Bibles give some suggestions of how to do that. But at the same time, I believe there is a good reason for us to do this, to gather basically these three chapters and read them together as a unity. Uh, You know that the Bibles are divided into chapters and verses for our help, but that, that's not really part of the original inspired text. So it's good that somebody came and made this division in chapters and verses, but at the same time, we need to be careful and not be so stuck to that that we miss something. So I think this is one of those cases in which, to a very significant degree, we should ignore somewhat the chapters and verses and try to see this in a different way. So one of the things that we can notice in this text is that seven times, I don't know if you noticed that, but seven times from chapter 2 to chapter 4, we see the phrase, in that day, seven times. And I think we all know what seven usually means in the Bible, right? Seven means perfection or fullness. So when we see seven times in that day being repeated, that means that that day is really coming and helps us to see the unit in all of this passage. So I believe that all these chapters, Isaiah is talking about one thing, maybe two. He's talking about the day of the Lord and the branch of the Lord. And so, in light of all that, there are three questions that I want us to consider today. First, what is the day of the Lord, anyways? Second, why is God sending that day? And finally, what will happen in that day? What is the day of the Lord? Why is God sending that day? And what will happen in that day? So, number one, what is the day of the Lord? So, Verse two, uh, chapter two, verse six says, begins saying, "For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob. You have rejected your people, 
the house of Jacob. So just by reading that, I suppose we can tell that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. The day of the Lord is a day in which God rejects his people. The day of the Lord is the day when God brings judgment under the terms of the covenant. Well, this phrase, the day of the Lord, appears a lot throughout the Bible. It's not just in these chapters. It appears especially in the prophets a lot. And this is how Jeremiah somewhat defines the day of the Lord. Jeremiah 46 verse 10 says, That day, the day of the Lord, is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. The day of the Lord is a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. Now stop and try to imagine that you are an Israelite and you hear that. What is your reaction? The day of the Lord is a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. And maybe your reaction will be, wow, that's great. God will avenge himself on my foes. But that's not what the passage is saying, right? It's the day in which God avenged himself on his foes. This is what the prophet Amos says in Amos chapter 5. Verse 18, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent beat him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom? with no brightness in it. So this is how we can define the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day of vengeance in which God comes to avenge himself on his enemies. And the difficult part about that is that, as the saying goes, we have found the enemy and he is us. So, the day of the Lord, what it is, is a day in which God and avenged himself on his enemies. The difficulty is to learn that we might be God's enemies. So, the second question that I want us to consider is, why is God sending a day of judgment? Well, in a nutshell... God is sending a day of judgment because Judah has broken the covenant. We are going to talk a lot about covenant for Isaiah. But let's look again at verse 6, the second uh, part of verse 6. Because they are full of things from the east and fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners, their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. Now, 
I think that when we read these verses, chapter, uh, verses 6 and 8 make it very clear that Judah is breaking the covenant. It is saying that they are practicing a lot of idolatry. Instead of worshiping God, they are worshiping all these idols from the other nations. But what about verse 7 that we just read? Why treasures, gold, silver, horses, chariots? Why are these things breaking the covenant? Aren't they good things? I wish I had a lot of horses and chariots and silver and whatever. Why, why is that breaking the covenant? Well, let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. It says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, You shall never return that way again. Verse 17. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Horses, chariots, silver and gold. See? Isn't that funny? What we might see, what Judah might see as signs of their prosperity were actually signs that they were breaking the covenant. Look at what Psalm 20 says. I think it's very familiar. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. That's the trust that Judah was supposed to have. Second, I want us to contrast what they are doing with their horses and chariots and everything to what we read last week about what the other nations were doing. Remember, in the beginning of chapter 2, they were transforming their weapons of war Into, web, into instruments of peace. The other nations are doing what Judah was supposed to be doing. Judah was supposed to be the example of trusting God. And they're learning a lesson from the other pagan nations around them. And this is one of the reasons why prosperity gospel is so bad. First of all, because it's not the gospel. Prosperity gospel says that if you are a Christian, everything will go so well to you today. You will have health and wealth, your better life today. That's not the gospel. And it's really damaging for us. 
Is this what this passage is saying? No, it's quite the contrary. If you are a Christian, I promise you, you will have a lot of trouble that you wouldn't have if you were not a Christian. I hope that's encouraging for you. The Bible is very clear. Money is not a problem. Don't let anybody tell you that. But love of money, putting love as a god, an idol in your life, that's a problem. That's what First Timothy 6 says. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And the Bible also says, Jesus saying, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. One central problem with Judah is that they were relying in their own understanding. Instead of thinking God's thoughts after him, they were thinking their own thoughts. They were trusting in their rich, their treasures, their military strength for their protection when they should be trusting the Lord. But this is not how we can find peace in our lives. We don't find peace in our lives because of riches or because of strength or because of health for that matter. How do we find peace, true peace in our lives? Well, Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we can find true peace in our lives, through Jesus Christ. So, that's what the day of the Lord is. This is why God is sending that day, but now... Uh, Longer question to answer. What will happen in that day? So, number one, God will not forgive. Chapter 2, verse 9. So man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. This is a hard verse. And the Hebrew in this verse is somewhat challenging. So I prefer the way that this verse is translated in the New King James Bible. It says, People bound down, and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not forgive them. Therefore, do not forgive them. This is how this verse is translated in the New King James Version, in the Old King James Version, in the Net Bible, some Bibles in some other languages, they have this translated this way. 
And I think it's more helpful for us to understand what is going on in this passage. Because people bow down to the idols, and because each man humbles himself before the idols, therefore, Isaiah asks God, do not forgive them. That's what the passage is saying. Okay, that's what the passage is saying, but how do you feel about it, honestly? How does that sound to you, saying, do not forgive them? I think it's weird. Is, is that a Christian thing to say anyway? Should we, aren't we supposed to forgive our enemies? So how can Isaiah say, do not forgive them? Well... There is a great irony in the Hebrew in this passage. The phrase, do not forgive them, in Hebrew is literally, do not lift them up. Do not lift them up is a Hebrew way of saying, do not forgive them. Do you sense the irony there? People bow down, they go on their knees before the idols. And what is Isaiah saying? Do not lift them up. Aren't they down before the idols? Leave them there. Leave them as they are, on their knees before the idols. That's literally what Isaiah is saying. In the day of the Lord, the proud will not be lifted up but God will be exalted. Do you sense the irony here? I think that one of the greatest accusations people throw at God is that God is a dictator, that he's a tyrant. Oh, God is telling me what to do. I feel so oppressed. I want to be free. I want to follow my own ways. And what is God saying in this passage? Very well. Follow your own ways. Do whatever you want. People want to say with Frank Sinatra and Bon Jovi, nothing against them, I think they are great singers, but I did it my way. And God is saying, well, very well, go, do it your way. God is doing exactly what people want. He's giving them autonomy, making their own rules. This is what Paul says in Romans 1.24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Because people are in sin, God sometimes removes all restraints and he just lets people go on their own sins. And that's giving you autonomy, I think you understand, is the worst thing that God can do to you. Maybe you heard this before, but there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, no, thy will be done. Which one do you want to be? Well, okay, 
Should Christians pray like that? Should Christians pray, do not forgive them? The answer is yes, but it's complicated. I shouldn't say complicated, complex. So hear me on that. Uh, look at verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. A few things that I want us to observe in this. Uh, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah is including himself among the sinners. Do you notice that? He's not saying, hey, house of Jacob, you go there and do this. He's saying, let us. He's basically begging them. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah includes himself among the people who need to repent. The second thing that I want us to notice is that first Isaiah is begging them to repent. And only then, because they do not repent, he is saying, forgive them not. Third, Isaiah is not praying for personal vengeance. It's not that somebody heard Isaiah and he is saying, God, Avenge yourself on my enemies. The only care that Isaiah has is for the honor, the glory of God. Not his honor, not for his glory. And fourth, God understands our pain. He knows that we are just flesh. And therefore, God inspired verses like this so that we can pray to him very honestly when we are in deep pain, seeing people breaking the covenant and insulting God. And finally, we need to consider that Isaiah is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So his motives are totally pure. Are our motives totally pure when we pray? I know mine are not. So... Can we pray like that? Short answer, yes. But be really careful. If you're not sure, never pray for God to bring justice. Pray for him to bring mercy. That the same mercy that God has shown to you, he may show to people around you. So, what else is happening in the day of the Lord? Uh, I don't know if you noticed, maybe you did, but chapter 2, verses 10, 19, and 21 are basically the same. They're super similar. And then verses 2.11 and 2.17, also they are very much the same. Uh, what is going on? Uh, it's not super easy to understand the structure of what Isaiah is doing. But this is very normal in Hebrew poetry. This repetition of phrases, not exactly the same, but very similar. We find that in Hebrew poetry. So these are things that he really wants to call our attention to. So if we think about all these as a song, songs have refrains, right? That thing that comes again and again. The refrain for this song would be something like this. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks, 
and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. When he rises to terrify the earth, the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. So this is, in a nutshell, what is going to happen in the day of the Lord. Isaiah insists a lot on this idea that the lofty pride of man shall be brought low. He uses several metaphors for that. On chapter 2, verse 12, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Verse 13, Against the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the the uplifted hills, against every tower and every fortified wall, against the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. Uh, To my knowledge, God has nothing against trees and mountains and ships and fortifications, They haven't broken the covenant. Actually, Paul says this in Romans 18. uh, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him subjected. So I don't think that in this passage, Isaiah is literally talking about trees and mountains and so on. These are metaphors that he is using for the people in Judah who are think of themselves as very tall trees or high mountains. They feel they are strong in their proudness. And what God is saying is that they will be brought low. On verses 18 to 22, Isaiah says the people will enter into caves. So it's a very powerful image. I think we can see that that's how low you will be brought. You will want to dig a cave. You want to go into a hole in the ground, fleeing from the Lord. And people will be carrying their idols, and either they will drop the idols before them because they're in a rush, or they will bring the idols with themselves into the caves. But that's the picture that Isaiah is giving us. And if we keep looking, uh, chapter 2, verse 22, to verse to chapter 3, verse 15, God is saying that he will judge the leaders of Judah. He was saying that he will judge Judah in general, and then he does something more specific. He will judge the leaders. And Isaiah mentions all sorts of leaders, mighty men, soldiers, judges, Even prophets, even prophets like Isaiah himself, these are all leaders and all of them will receive judgment in the day of the Lord. And if we keep reading chapter 3, verse 16, God is saying that he will judge the daughters of Zion, which seems to be a way of saying the women of Judah. So, What God is saying is that he will judge everybody in Judah. He will judge 
the leaders, the more important people in Judah. He will judge the women who, it's hard to say that, but if for in their point of view, were the least in Judah. That's not how we should see women, but that's how they saw it. So from the highest to the lowest, everybody's in sin. And everybody's receiving judgment. Just like Paul says in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So everybody's receiving judgment. But is that all that is going to happen in the day of the Lord? God bringing judgment? Well, thankfully not. Look at me to chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. So, who or what is the branch of the Lord? There are at least three options that we can find in commentaries. One of them is that the branch is literally a branch, the things that comes out from the tree. A second option is that the branch is a reference to the remnant, people who will survive the judgment. And finally, a more traditional alternative is that the branch is Jesus. And so we all know that the right answer when we don't know is Jesus. Well, I think that all these three options are good. All of them have merit. I would say that maybe all of them are right. And you're going to say maybe, Bruno, you're too agreeable. Choose one. But please bear with me uh, as we go through this. So first, the branch of the Lord is a branch. This actually makes sense. Because Isaiah is also talking in chapter 4 about the fruit of the land. And the Hebrew that we translate as branch can be translated as branch and bud and a plant that grows, sprout. Well, all sorts of agricultural terms are possible translations. And if we go back to Deuteronomy 28... Good or bad crops are a sign of blessing or curse under the covenant. So it makes sense that God is saying that in his restoration, he will bless them with good crops. That's, that's possible. Well, the second option is that the branch refers to a remnant. Some people who will survive. Remember that earlier Isaiah was talking about cedars of Lebanon and oaks. Well, these are very tall trees who were proud and lofty. And now Isaiah is talking about something small, just a little branch, a bud growing from the tree. So it's a way of Isaiah saying the those who are not humble, will be judged. But those who are humble, who see themselves as small, will be blessed. 
will survive. And, well, Deuteronomy 30 actually talks about that. He says that if they break the covenant, God will send judgment, but there will be a remnant. And Paul goes back to that in Romans 9 to Romans 11. Talks about this remnant. So, that's possible. John Calvin goes in this direction. Well, if John Calvin thinks it's the remnant, then probably it's the remnant, right? Well, John Calvin has a slightly different understanding. He thinks the remnant is the church. But then also, it's the way of Calvin understanding the church in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. But it's an option. It's talking about the remnant. After God sends judgment, he cleanses us from our sin and he brings salvation. If, I don't know if you noticed, this passage talks about a cloud and a flame. These are pictures from the Exodus, right? So it is saying, I will restore you to the way things were before you broke the covenant when we have innocence between us. So these are all uh, reasons why we can think Isaiah is talking about a remnant. And finally, Isaiah might be talking about Jesus. Well, for one thing, all the Bible is about Jesus. That's what Jesus said to his disciples on the road to Amos in Luke 24. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The prophets, including Isaiah, have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Well, that's a general reference, but if we look at Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 33 and Zechariah 6, they are talking about a branch as well. And it's clearly a messianic title. And even here in Isaiah, if we go to Isaiah 11, uh, the branch is also used as a messianic title. The only difference is that here in chapter 4, the branches of the Lord, and in chapter 11 in Isaiah, the branch is of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David. And that's who Jesus is, right? He is the son of God. He is also the son of David. So these are reasons why we can think that the branch is actually Jesus. Well, regardless of what interpretation makes more sense to you, there is one thing that we can know for sure from this passage. Remember how Jeremiah defines the day of the Lord? That day is the day of the Lord of hosts, a day of vengeance, to avenge himself on his foes. A day in which God avenged himself on his foes. And what does Isaiah says in Isaiah 53? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity 
a false soul. The day of the Lord is a day in which God seeks vengeance on his enemies. For Jesus, the day of the Lord happened on the cross. Jesus made himself God's enemy in our place. The judgment that was due to us, to his elect, fell on Jesus instead. For all who seek refuge in Jesus, he receives the punishment that we should receive in the day of the Lord. But when will this happen? Well, Pastor Tim was talking about that last week, so I just want to add a few things because of chapters 2 to chapter 4. And the answer is, when will these things happen? Well, in a way, they're happening right now. Chapter 2 began saying that these things will happen in the later days, latter days. And according to Peter, the Apostle Peter, when he's quoting from the prophet Job, he says, we are living in the latter days. Well, Peter says last days, but the word, the original word that is translated as latter or last is the same word, so it's the same thing. Peter says in the beginning of Acts that we are in the latter days. So we've been living in the latter days since Jesus' resurrection. But at the same time, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Judah suffered a day of the Lord when he was conquered and destroyed. Jesus suffered the day of the Lord when he was on the cross. We are waiting for a last day of the Lord when God will finally come at the end of time and avenge himself once and for all on his enemies. We are still waiting for this last day of the Lord. And the only way to escape that day is in Jesus. Well, as Paul says in Titus 2, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Do you remember how we began 
talking about Zechariah, and God was saying to Zechariah, do not despise the day of small things. Well, look at the church today. Maybe you think that the church is just a small thing. Maybe you think that we are weak because we don't have horses and chariots and silver and gold or whatever is equivalent to that today. But that's what God is saying. Those who are humble will be saved. Those who are proud will be judged. So let us not despise the day of small things. God is saying a judgment. For those who repent, even if we are just a small branch, we find hope in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this great salvation. Thank you because you are holy and you cannot endure sin. Thank you because you care about your character so much more than you care about anything else. And thank you because you are not giving us autonomy. You are not letting us just go in our own ways, but you are as a loving father correcting your loving, your loved children. Thank you, Lord, because you send judgment, but because you are also a merciful God who gives reason for hope. Please, Lord, make everyone here today hope in Jesus, understand that we don't need to suffer this judgment, but we can understand that you are a loving God and we can seek refuge in you. And even if we are small, help us see with the eyes of faith to know, Lord, what awaits us in that last day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.